fill that one. Okay. Hi, my name is Ivanjan. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Is that the right? All right. Good bell. <laughs> um, it's nice to be here. Apparently, I've been told, uh, foot. <laughs> I'm going to try my best. But um, I'd like to, um, again, thank the committee for um, for having me out here. It's just been a really lovely weekend with you all. Um, and uh, let's see what, uh, let's see. We're okay, actually. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, uh, sorry, I'm actually adjusting to this right on my face. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, I, uh, if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, here's a great way to start. I'd like to welcome you and, um, I'm gonna, uh, just, just kind of loosen myself up for a minute. And I know that most of you were here last night. Yeah. Um, but for those of you who weren't, I, uh, I drank a lot. (laughs) An awful lot. I drank away the most important thing to me in my life, which was my daughter, right? And uh, and uh, and and that that act was the thing that beat me into a state of reasonableness. Here's the funny thing about that, though. Um, I um, you know, for, for whoever wasn't here, I have to be careful with my arm gestures. <laughs> For whoever wasn't here, I was offered a deal to go into a facility, and it was the only way I could get custody of my daughter back. And uh, and I went because I wanted custody of my daughter, but I didn't want to be sober. And I uh, I was only going to go for I was only going to go for a little bit. Um, in fact, I packed up my things when I was there for 90 days. It was a one-year program. I packed up my things when I was there for 90 days. And uh, it took me a little while to pack. And by the time I got into the kitchen, Child Protective Services was waiting for me. (laughs) And they told me that I was free to leave at any time, but I was not going to be taking my daughter with me. Uh, So I angrily stomped back up the stairs. And if you had asked me if I, uh, you know, we have this this phrase in in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, um, if we're willing to go to any lengths, right? And I'm really grateful that my first sponsor didn't ask me if I was willing to go to any lengths. <laughs> um, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, am, I am not interested in anything Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. Uh, the, the truth is, I had no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous had to offer. What it looked like to me when I was new going to meetings was lame, right? Like, just... People kind of meeting and talking about their feelings and then not drinking. And then apparently people were happy with not drinking, but I just, it was not appealing to me at all. (laughs) And I could see, you know, because um, I love to drink and drinking does it for me. But whenever I drink, you know, 
almost anything that's around me is going to be ingested, right? Um, I could see that maybe, maybe I can't do anything illegal. But drinking, you know, and I was 21 years old, and in the U.S., that's when you're allowed to drink, finally. Right? I mean, who would get sober the year you're allowed to drink? Right? So I'm not, you know, I'm just, it's just going to be for a short period of time. So I had a really bad attitude about Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, and and I didn't like meetings at all. Um, I didn't mind so much the part before and the part after. <laughs> it was just the during that I really hated, uh, the meeting part. <laughs> and it just, you know, I just, it, 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 I never thought that it would look any different than that. Um, nor did I really care because I'm not here for very long, right? I'm just, I don't need you, um, is what I thought. And, and I already described yesterday, but it just feels more comfortable to talk about it. That that so I went through this treatment facility, and I I couldn't leave without giving up my daughter, and I wasn't willing to give up my daughter, but I was going to get out, and then it was all over. In fact, I I used to tell the ladies um, when they made us go to a couple of meetings a month, I would say, there is no point in making me go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm never going to go when I leave here. And they would say, I could do whatever I want once I leave, but while I'm there, I'm going to have to go to meetings. And I remember when I was in that detox, I, um, <laughs> I had such a bad attitude that they took a vote and told me that they decided that I was the, it's the, the superlative, the detox superlatives. I was the most likely to relapse. <laughs> and, um, and, and the thing is, is that wasn't an unkind thing to say. It was just true. I, I could have told them yes, because I don't even want to be sober. Like, I, I'm not, I wasn't ever trying. I didn't try ever to get sober. When my mother made me go to meetings growing up, I never tried. I never got a sponsor. I didn't know anything about steps. I was a year sober before I even under, before I remember hearing the word home group. I don't remember ever hearing anyone talk about that. And I don't know if it's because I didn't pay attention in meetings or because the meetings I went to, people weren't active members of a home group. I'm not sure. Um, but, but you know, there I was. And, and then, as I said yesterday, I was 11 months sober and in the Lano Club. And there was a flyer and there was a man that was going to be speaking and his name was Sandy Beach. And I had heard him before and I had liked him. I remembered that. He was the only speaker I remember ever hearing. There aren't very many speaker meetings where I got sober. So I asked permission to go to hear him speak that night, and it was the first time I've ever asked to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I showed up that night, and I'm sure Sandy gave a great talk because he's my favorite speaker, but I don't remember him at all. I just remember, and, and to be clear, like I was 22 years old with 11 months of sobriety. I am almost out of treatment. I'm going to be out of treatment in three months. And I have zero interest in things. I have no intention of staying sober once I leave. I'm going to drink like a gentleman. <laughs> it's going to be different now that I'm 21. <laughs> and so I, I walk into this room, and there were... About It was about 200 people, and they were young people, which was interesting to me um, because I 
I didn't know that young people got sober. It, it was, uh, you know, I'm so grateful that there were people around me that told me that I needed to be part of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole, right? That I had to be in, I, I couldn't, um, I can't only go to women's meetings. I can't only, I, I don't go to lawyers' meetings, but some people like those kinds of things. Um, same thing with young people's. I need to be part of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. But it was extremely um, appealing to see a whole lot of young people that were really active and on fire with Alcoholics Anonymous. It was attractive to me, right? We have what's a program of traction. And it was attractive to me to, to see these kids. And, you know, the other thing, too, is because I was young and um, in I knew um, I didn't need Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't need to be sober. I knew what would solve my problem, and I said it last night. One was money. That was the big one. But the, the other thing was a boyfriend, right? I mean, obviously. And um, there were a lot of potential candidates at that meeting <laughs> that I went to. A lot of really cute young guys. Um, in fact, one, I think, came the next week and got screened at my treatment facility to take me out. <laughs> I still make fun of him for that today. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, um, it was attractive. And, and, and so I found out where these kids went to meetings. And, and that's kind of, you know, um, you know, um, William and I were talking about it right before. How crazy. And my, my best friend, Kenna, who sponsors my daughter, Caitlin, talks about this um, the same idea of like one day we're drinkers and then one day we're sober. And it's crazy that we have that. And I've seen people, um, I think a lot just in, in the years that I've been sober, 24 years and nine months, um, I have seen people have that grace that I was given, right? Um, and embrace it and get active in Alcoholics Anonymous and then kind of slip away. And sometimes I remember seeing this, um, this woman, Christy Morales. I'll say her name now because she's dead. Do you remember her, Katrina? Did you ever see her, Irma? Yeah. This young lady, um, she was a, she wasn't a young lady. She was a lady. She came from Skid Row. Are you familiar with that? Um, is there a better word for it here? Huh? <laughs> um, yeah, the rough streets, right? The roughest, roughest streets she came from. And it turns out, actually, she was raised in, a, in an affluent family. And, and when I discovered that, when I met her parents, who were, who were quite well off, I the uh, incongruity of that, right? Because she didn't look like somebody who had been raised like she had lost that, right? Just living on the streets for so long that the, the kind of middle class or affluent veneer was gone. She was very street. And against all odds, this woman got sober. And my group loved her because women like her don't get sober, Right. And they loved her. And I remember when she had one year and, and in my home group, we take, uh, you celebrate, you get a, a birthday cake on your, on your anniversary. Not, we don't do chips. We do birthday cakes. And when she came up to blow out her candles and, and you go to the podium for just a few seconds and you, you thank everybody for keeping you sober. 
the room went wild, just wild for this woman. And then um, a few months later, she started to, uh, you know, her job started to get in the way of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? The good life that AA got her got in the way of AA, and she drank again. And then I remember sitting with her. We have a meeting um, uh, on Friday night in my group. The women have a meeting and the men have a meeting. And in the women's meeting, you raise your hand if if you're having a problem that you might drink over and you say, uh, my name's Yvonne, I'm an alcoholic, and, uh, you know, my husband died and I, I'm thinking about taking a drink, right? And then a couple of women will share a solution that they have to that problem. And I remember this woman coming in, Christy, drunk, and, uh, and she raised her hand and she said, um, she said, I don't know how you get sober. And I sat there thinking about it, and I thought, I don't know. I know, like, once we're sober, I can share with you my experience, the actions my sponsor told me to take, and I guarantee that the actions will keep me sober because that's my experience. But what I don't know is how you have that moment of grace where one day you're a drinker and then one day you're sober. And sometimes we see women like Christy and, and men, we see our fellow alcoholics lose that grace and never get that opportunity again. You know, and she died shortly afterwards in the most tragic, terrible way, matter of fact. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, I had that grace and I didn't know it. Right? I didn't want it. I wasn't interested in it. Um, but I had that grace and, and if you had asked me again, if I was willing, I would have said, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not interested in this. Um, and yet I started to show up to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I would show up the next night and I would show up the next night and I would show up the next night. And then I told you that this mean young lady appointed herself as my sponsor. <laughs> and um, and I needed her. I didn't want her to sponsor me at all. And she was it's like God puts the right person. You know, it's funny. This is one of those things like I have this um, this deep respect for sponsorship. And when someone comes to me and says, my sponsor is telling me to do X, Y, and Z. Um, I don't say, what? What did they tell you? Never. Um, I'm, I mean... This would never happen, but if they said, my sponsor wants me to drink beer, you know what I mean? I'm not being ridiculous about it. But sometimes um, the way new people hear things can be interesting, right? And, and I'm so grateful because some of the things my sponsor told me to do, like, um, like I shared, like she wanted me to go to a meeting every day. And, uh, and, and I tried to explain I couldn't go to a meeting every day because I had a two-year-old. And I can tell you that um, a two-year-old does not belong in a meeting every day, right? So um, my home group that I started to go to, the closest meeting to me was 38 miles. Do you guys know that, miles? I don't know, kilometer. Anyway, the closest, you know, it's 40 miles one way. So long story short, most nights I get home at 11 o'clock at night, and that's when the baby goes to bed, right? Not a good life for a baby. That's not what you should do. 
any reasonable, sane adult would have said, you can't have your meeting, your baby in a meeting every night. And yet, my sponsor, Marion, who died six or seven, eight years ago, used to say that you get the right direction from the person. Like she would say sometimes, I would have never given you that direction, but it must have been the direction you were supposed to get because that's the direction you got, right? And I think in looking back that somebody like me needed that structure that um, even though, like Bill writes in our traditions, sometimes the good is the enemy of the best, right? Not a good life for a child, but the alternative was worse, right? If I drank with her again, the kind of life that we would have had would have been tragic, terrible. Um, you know, most of us in this room know the kind of life I live with that little girl. And so anything, <laughs> anything sober was infinitely better than that. So my sponsor gave me, you know, weird direction. You'll go to a meeting every night. And, and so I started to go to a meeting every night. And, and I told you, I told you yesterday that, um, that, uh, so when we moved out of that treatment facility and I, I have that sponsor now and I'm going to a meeting every night, <laughs> but I, um, I tell my sponsor as little as possible, right? Like anything I want to do, she's going to think is a bad idea. I already know that. So I just avoid certain topics, right? <laughs> My sponsor thought everything was her business. And I didn't agree with that, right? I also wouldn't tell her that either because <laughs> she scared me. <laughs> so I just kind of kept a secret. See, there were a lot of things like, um, you know, uh, I, I already shared yesterday that I, um, so we're living in the projects. We're the, living on welfare there. Is, it's hard. It's, it's very hard to get by. And, uh, um, and so I, I know how to make money. So I go to work for an escort service. And then it isn't just that either. It's, it's like, not only am I now, I'm making money and it's not bad money actually, but I can't seem to hold on to it, right? Nothing on the outside changes. And then, um, now I'm shoplifting also, right? And it's the weirdest thing. Like, so I have cash now to buy stuff. But I'm in a store and I see something I want and I can slip it in my purse, I'll slip it in my purse. Or like I'm in the doctor's offices stealing bandages when, when they leave, like just weird, you know, I don't need it. Pens, pens, right? I'll steal pens from everywhere. It's just a, <laughs> it's a, um, it's a void, right? I'm trying to fill a void. And I think that things are going to fill that void and I'm going to feel okay. And it, it's, it never works, of course. And I'll talk about later, um, you know, that that void being a step six and seven problem, right? I cannot, I cannot ever get the supply to meet the demand, ever. It isn't possible. I need God to decrease the demand to meet the supply. That's how that always works. But when I'm new, I don't know that. I think that something outside of me is going to fix me. So I'm looking for all kinds of things to fix me. And, uh, and, and my life became a disaster at 18 months of sobriety. I want to drink and, um, not just, I want to, I didn't want to drink. I wanted to die. I knew I was going to drink. I knew it was inevitable. I never had the thought I want to drink. I had the thought buy a gun, right? That's, you know, um, 
And, uh, and that's when I finally surrendered to my sponsor. And it was like, I, I said this yesterday. I didn't trust her. I really, I really didn't trust my sponsor. And I hate to be unkind, but she wasn't, um, that smart, right? The thing about that, though, is that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a program of intelligence, right? <laughs> uh, in fact, Clancy has something he says about, like, I, the, the more intelligent you are, the harder it is to get sober, right? You know, because I'm, I want to be logical about this. <laughs> I remember being new and looking. I'm, I'm, like, turning around to look at the steps, right? Looking at the steps and thinking, like, whatever, <laughs> like... Come on, like that's so hokey. What what is that gonna do about my life? Like it made zero sense to me. That I mean, maybe a maybe a dumb person, right? Somebody who who buys into church, for example, like someone like my mother who has faith, they can be um, anesthetized by this step stuff, right? But smart people, we don't. Mm, you know, it just yeah. So, so I didn't trust my sponsor and not just, not just because I didn't trust her as a human and, and that was true also, but I also didn't trust that she was smart enough to direct my life. And, uh, by the time I'm 18 months sober and I want to check out of life, it didn't matter, right? I didn't have to trust my sponsor. I just knew she couldn't do a worse job with my life than I was doing, right? That's that's the thing. And I surrendered to her and it was almost like a game. Like I am going to give everything to my sponsor, like everything, everything. I'm going to tell her everything about the way I think, which I never shared with anybody <laughs> because it was crazy, right? <laughs> what happened in here was so insane. I was scared to share it. I'm so glad in Alcoholics Anonymous, you, I, I wish I could think of some crazy thought right now that I had, because if whatever it is I was thinking, if I said it out loud in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, the reaction would be the laughter of identification, right? That's it. And I'm so afraid that I'm, I'm worse in here, that I'm afraid to tell anybody. And now I don't have any other answer, so I'm willing to tell her everything. And, uh, and the thing is, 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 is I surrendered to her direction and I stopped treating Alcoholics Anonymous like an extracurricular activity. I just, I gave her everything and said, you do what you want with it and I'll follow it. And the idea was not totally formulated, but kind of the idea in the back of my mind was if this doesn't get better, there's always lights out, right? Because I don't know. So I, yeah. At 18 months of sobriety, I knew I shouldn't drink again, that it would not be good. I understood that. Um, but I also couldn't stay sober the way that I was either. And so checking out seemed like the best option for that. You know, our book talks about the jumping off place, right? You can't imagine life with alcohol or life without alcohol. So there I am, and I surrender it to my sponsor, and the thing is, is that action of surrender is the thing that changed it. I knew so much. I was so smart. And yet my life was a complete disaster. And, and when I got to a place where I realized I don't know anything about how to be happy, that's what I really wanted was happiness. Like I wanted, 
I don't think I ever believed that I would feel joy, but, but I just, I, no, I wanted to be comfortable in my own skin is what I wanted. And I just, I never, I always felt like I'm pretending. And so, you know, I, I turn myself over to my sponsor and, and she starts to direct me and she gets me, I mean, she was already getting me really busy, but now she's really getting me busy in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm, I'm, I'll do anything that she asks me to do, anything. Um, and, uh, and I already told you the thing about that's where she finally took the opportunity because, um, <laughs> because I was so, I'm always laughing at myself, but <laughs> because it's so ridiculous in there, <laughs> we need a big flashlight. Um, because everything was so hard, right? Life hurts so much. And when she told me to stop sharing it with people, like, it's funny because sometimes I'll tell it to people, like I'll tell someone, you know, someone who might get somewhere around the place that I was at and I'll say, no, don't tell people how you are anymore. And they're like, aren't we supposed to be rigorously honest? And I'm like, in your case, no. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I, I didn't like... I surrendered to the direction, so I was willing to follow it. I'm, I'm not going to tell people how I am anymore, so there's no more self-pity, gross um, rants anymore. And I'm going to smile and pretend I'm happy. But I thought I was doing something for you, like that my sponsor was being mean to me and being nice to you all by not allowing me to do that. I didn't know that what she was asking me to do was for me. Um, and, uh, and like I said yesterday, I don't, I started to pretend I was happy. I started telling, stopped, stopped telling people how I was. And at some point, um, I became a joyful person. I really did. Like I, I felt filled with joy and, um, um, and it, it's remained that way since. And it doesn't mean I've gone through periods of time where, uh, where things have been rough. My mother dying was brutal, absolutely brutal. And yet, while I was in pain the whole time, I knew I wouldn't always hurt. I knew time and God, right? Time and God that everything would be okay. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, about my process with the steps and with um, with how I found God. If you heard me yesterday, you know, I was 11, I was raised Roman Catholic, very devout, believing in God. And when I was 11 years old, a lot of terrible things happened around me and to me, and I lost that connection to God. So when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous 10 years later, at 21 years old, I was a true agnostic. I wasn't sure, I I was not atheist, I couldn't be 100% sure there was no God. But I couldn't feel God and I didn't believe. Like, I met lots of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who had faith in God. And I believed you had that. But I didn't know any way that I could get it, right? And so, so I just, you know, I just, I didn't know how that would ever be different. And one thing that my sponsor asked me to do, of course, was to get on my knees and pray. And my first reaction to that was like... (laughs) knees like come on like first of all it's irrelevant what position my body is in 
God doesn't care, right, if there is a God. Um, and two, when I would try to pray, I felt like a chump. Like, all I could do, I'm alone in my room, and I care that I look stupid. <laughs> I'm on my knees, talking to air, feeling like an idiot. And so I would stop, because I felt stupid, alone, right? And the thing is, I, I, I recognize later, in case I forget to come back to it, of course doesn't God doesn't care what position my body is in. It's for me. The act of being on my knees is an act of humility for me. That is what I'm looking for for the through the 12 steps is humility. And so now I understand. See, it was the rational rationalization. I was so rational, I couldn't understand anything. And this whole idea of not being willing to pray is, again, a lack of humility. <laughs> because... I learned, even after I surrendered to my sponsor, I surrendered everything except prayer. It was the one thing I wouldn't surrender. And the thing about it is, is, is that the act of prayer is also an act of humility, just like the act of following direction that makes no sense. It's an act of humility. And I, I get great results from acts of humility. And I know that because I have enough experience now where I can see that and yet, and yet, as Bill writes in the 12 and 12 and the 12 step, I was seized with a stubbornness, right? And I, I could not, I could not do it. So, so I get to Alcoholics Anonymous with this aloof attitude or ambivalent feeling about God, whether he exists or not. And I also get here, um, not wanting what you have and not really thinking that I'm an alcoholic. You know, at the very end, I got in trouble because of a combination of alcohol and, right? And, uh, and I remember, <laughs> I remember walking into, um, <laughs> my treatment facility took us to a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous one day. And, um, and it was one of those ones where you raise your hand to share. And, uh, and I had a lot to say. Always. <laughs> And I raised my hand to share, and I remember I shared as Yvonne and something other than alcoholic, right? And the woman interrupted me, who was leading the meeting, as she should have, because I was in a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, where only alcohol, in, in fact, in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, only alcoholics participate. That's our tradition. So she interrupted me, and she asked me if I was an alcoholic, and I said, no, I don't even drink. <laughs> And it was true at that moment, right? <laughs> um, and the truth is, when I looked at it later, I could recognize that maybe, maybe, maybe I can't ever do anything else because, you know, it's a quick descent. But I'm not going to give up drinking, you know. Drinking, like everybody drinks. You, I, I don't have to give up drinking. I just have to give up <laughs> losing control, <laughs> right? And so, you know, that woman, that mean young lady who appointed herself as my sponsor made me write an inventory. And at the time I did that inventory, I didn't even believe I was an alcoholic. And I'm grateful for this. And I remember hearing Johnny H. from Bellflower share about this. So I did my fourth step and my fifth step, and it was in the process of my fifth step that I did steps one, two, and three because it was uh, writing out the inventory that I saw long before I was introduced to anything else. Look, here's the truth of it. When I was 
almost 18 years old and I went, I left home to go to college and I'm going from Fairfax, Virginia to New York University, right? I'm going to study acting at New York University. And a semester later, I'm not in school anymore and instead I'm a stripper, right? I have not even had a drug yet. I gave up all of that to drink, right? Because my drinking got in the way of my education or my education got in the way of my drinking, right? And, and dancing gave me the money to drink the way I wanted to and nobody there cared how much I drank. So I drank away my life long before anything else was introduced. And it was in, in, in the inventory process that, that I had to recognize that, that I was a garden variety alcoholic. So I knew I was an alcoholic and, uh, I'll tell you something else after that fifth step, because <laughs> I was always a legend in my own mind, right? I knew when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys came here drinking a little red wine, right? <laughs> you weren't like bad like I was, right? Now, I got sober at 21, right? How bad was I? <laughs> I didn't last very long, but <laughs> but again, I was a legend in my own mind. So, um, so when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and when my sponsor... When I recognized finally that, okay, yes, I'm alcoholic. I'm alcoholic because when I pick up a drink, I can't control how much I drink or when I'm going to stop. All right, I'm alcoholic. But I'm not only an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic and a something else because you guys got here on red wine. You know, I'm, I'm badder, right? I'm different. Um, and she didn't ask me to stop. I, I was the only one in my meetings identifying that way. Of course I was, right? <laughs> She didn't tell me to stop doing that. She gave me a tape. We had tapes back then. She gave me a tape of Johnny from Bellflower. She told me to go home and play it. And I played it. And what I heard him say was that as long as he was an alcoholic and a something else, that he was different from you. And that the program that worked for you might not work for him. And when I heard him say that, I knew, I knew that's why I was identifying as that, right? To let you know that mm, while you guys got here drinking a little, like, I was tough, right? So, and, and by the time I did my inventory, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous long enough to, to be attracted to what was happening here. And so from that day till this, I've only, I'm just a garden variety alcoholic. That's it. I'm just, and it's so funny today because I, I can't even think of myself in it. I am a garden variety alcoholic. It's not something I say. It's something I know to my innermost being. So, I, you know, I do that and my, my sponsor gets me, gets me busy, uh, with new people and with, um, with commitments and made up commitments when I can't get commitments. I'm just all over the place you know, learning to be of service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And my sponsor, like, I'm somebody that, um, if you come to my home group, I have, like, Irma can tell you, I have, like, many, many commitments. <laughs> There's lots of things that I have my fingers in. Um, and it isn't because I'm a good person, right? And, uh, my sponsor got it in my head when I was pretty new. Like, I'm somebody, my head is very loud. It talks to me all the time, very busy, and it's never nice. Right? <laughs> it's always how terrible I am, um, how different I am. Um, I'll never be like you. It's, it's constant. 
And my sponsor said, the louder my head is, the more work I have to do. And it seemed like she was right in the sense that the more service I did, the more I did for others, the better off I felt. And even better if it was things that nobody knew about, right? Like, uh, you know, like, uh, like here, like whoever baked the cakes and brought them in, I didn't get to see who baked the cake. So you get humility for that, right? You just, maybe some people here know who baked the cakes, but, um, we know who cut them. <laughs> it was great cutting. Matter of fact, where's Alex? Is he here? Anyway, um, and so I got, I got very, very busy in Alcoholics Anonymous and it, and it gave me relief. But so things kind of progressed along that way, but my sponsor at that time had never been beyond the fifth step. So I was not beyond the fifth, you know, we just kind of stopped there. (laughs) Um, and, and the concept we had was, uh, was that, uh, you make amends by living differently, right? Um, which is important. It is important to live differently. But where I got sober, there was a man who used to say, um, he would say, he would say, when we, when we amend the Constitution, we don't apologize to it, we change it, right? And when I was new, I would think, yeah, that's right, that's right. Except for that the word amend is different from the word amends. In the dictionary, they have two different definitions. In fact, the word amends is both singular and plural. I make an amends and I make plural amends, right? It's the same thing. I don't make an amend. And the word amends the dictionary is to make direct restitution, right? And so, yes, I have to live differently. But what I needed to learn eventually was that I also have to right the wrongs I did. Um, But we weren't there yet because my sponsor wasn't there yet. And, uh, and like I said, I had no relationship with God and, um, and it was the one thing that I wouldn't do. And when I was two and a half years sober, uh, I flew from the DC area to, um, Southern California to go to a, a conference, an AA conference out there in Southern California. And we had, um, we had been going, my home group had been going to, uh, um, so in the D.C. area, there's not very many speaker meetings, as I said, but there are many conferences within a six to eight hour drive. Right. And I have a feeling that you guys are like this, too. Right. So we have the Lithuanians here because there's a conference this weekend. Yep. Um, if there was a conference within an eight hour drive, we'd we'd pack up a bunch of cars and rent a couple of hotel rooms and just put bodies everywhere and just go. And, and we would listen to uh, I remember just. When I was new, like I said, I still hated meetings, the, the meeting part. I liked the before and the after, <laughs> but the meeting part I didn't like. And then the first time we got packed into a car and drove somewhere, and I heard, uh, I, I can't even remember who my first speaker was. It was like Johnny, or it was Clancy, or it was Sharon, or it was Tom Ivester. And I remember just feeling like... Uh, like full, right? Like, uh, like satiated. Like, what is this? You know, I, um, it was the first time it was and hearing people share their experience, um, in getting sober and in staying sober that I started to, to fall in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I was like, I was, uh, I had no money that I would get tapes whenever I could. And, um, and my car didn't have, um, I had a car that a church donated to me 
I still remember it was a powder blue 1978 Honda CVCC Civic, Civic, I think. Yeah. And it had no tape deck. <laughs> but my daughter had a little Fisher Price tape recorder. And I would put that in the console and I'd have to turn it up as loud as I could because the car was so loud. It was a stick shift. And I would put the tapes in there. And I remember like going, um, when I was about 18 months sober, a, a bunch of people in my group, there was an ikipa in, um, in Hawaii. Now I live in the projects. I have no money. I'm not going to Hawaii. And then somebody bought me a ticket to go to Hawaii with them. And, uh, and, and my mom watched my daughter while I went that weekend and they invited me to stay in the hotel room with them. And then some other woman took me on a side trip to Kauai and I, I couldn't even believe it. And I remember hearing, um, Bobby Coyle from Philly <laughs> that weekend and I bought his tape. My mom gave me some money that weekend and I bought his tape. And if you got in my car, you had to listen to Bobby. <laughs> And I started to fall in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I was two and a half years sober, we went to, it was an Ikipa in Anaheim. And um, a bunch of us went out a few days early because going to those conferences, I kept hearing all these speakers from the Pacific Group. I mean, I heard speakers from other groups too, but there were so many from the Pacific Group. And I thought, what kind of a speaker factory is this? <laughs> it's so weird. And I remember... Um, about 80 of us went that night. And, and in my home group, if you come visit, um, there's a part where they ask if, if you're out of state and you're visiting to stand up and introduce yourself. And we'd love to know who you are so we can say hi to you at the break. And, and, and I remember how fun it was that night because it was one, two, three, four, 80 people were all from the same home group and, and everybody was cracking up and, and it was so funny. But, but the most important thing is I remember walking in there and thinking, I love this, like this meeting, like walking into a meeting with, um, I think there were maybe like 800 people there at the time. And, um, I loved the energy of that room. And I was like, I want to move here and be part of this. Like, I love that. And then I, after that, when, then I went to the conference that weekend and after that weekend, I, I got on the airplane and, and, um, and, uh, um, here's the thing. I, um, <laughs> I, I got really distracted that weekend with a boy. <laughs> he, um, was paying a lot of attention to me on Thursday, but not on Saturday. <laughs> and so by Sunday I was obsessed. <laughs> and, um, we were on a layover in Houston and I was paying attention to him and her. And I was not paying attention to myself. And, and when I stood up really quickly, I, I had my backpack on and it, it fell off and my arm jerked up. And I had, you know, those like boarding passes used to be hard, kind of like cardstock paper. I jerked it up and I clipped off some cornea for my eye. Sorry, it's really nasty. <laughs> And, um, and I just thought, you know, when you poke yourself in the eye, it hurts really bad, but it, it goes away in a short period of time. And so I got on the airplane. Well, I mean, what else was I going to do? But I thought, you know, it was stinging, but I thought it's because I hit myself in the eye. I thought it was going to stop. I didn't realize I had literally clipped off cornea. And, um, by the time we got to DC, um, 
I was dying. I was dying the whole way. I remember the flight attendant felt so terrible for me. There was, I just couldn't, if, if you've ever gotten something in your eye or cut your cornea, you know how bad it is. It was, it was horrible. And so I, I go to the emergency room as soon as I get off the airplane and, uh, and they tell me what happened and they said, not a big deal. You know, corneal tissue is the fastest reproducing cell in the body. You know, three days it'll be totally recovered. Except it didn't recover. <laughs> it didn't grow back. And, and what happened is the, the hole kept expanding wider and wider. And, uh, what happens when, when that happens is that, um, we don't have blood vessels in our cornea, but they will grow in there to try to heal it. And, uh, as they grow in, they blind you, right? Because they scar the cornea as they go through it. So, so over the next couple of months, I'm getting blinder and blinder and blinder, and it also won't heal. And, and so I'm in excruciating nonstop pain. And I go from a regular doctor. I went from a regular eye doctor to um, I was I was in college at the time at George Washington University, and I went to GW, and then GW transferred me out to Johns Hopkins, which was an hour and a half drive each way in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And I had to go see them every day. They needed to see me every day. And on Sunday, they didn't have appointments. We would just, my mother would have to drive me because I, I couldn't drive anymore um, because of the light sensitivity. But we would, um, we would just wait in a dark waiting room for the on-call surgeons to make the rounds. And they would know I was there and they would come in and, and see me that day. And, and I, was in, uh, I was in so much physical pain. It felt like somebody was sticking a hot poker in my eye all of the time. It was relentless. The most horrible pain I ever experienced in my life. And at one point, um, for more than a month, I had to put eye drops in my eye every half an hour, 24 hours a day. I remember I had to switch them. Um, and I never had to set an alarm clock for 30 minutes because I couldn't sleep that long because of the pain. I just, and, and you know, if you're here and you've suffered from some kind of chronic or acute, you know, physical condition, one of the greatest problems is the lack of sleep, right? Just not being able to get enough sleep. And, and, uh, and my sponsor wouldn't allow me to take pain medication. And here's the thing is that it was the right call. Um, there may be a time when it's necessary for something that is short term. I don't know. We'll see when it happens, but someone like me, I, I cannot with my background, live on something that's going to take the edge off. I have to find another way. It's no amount of pain is worth the risk of returning to the life that I had before. And that's as simple as it is for me. So that's, that's how I handle that. Um, but I, I was, I was in excruciating pain and, um, no sleep. And one Saturday, it's Saturday evening by the time I see the doctor, and the doctor says, Yvonne, there's nothing more we can do for you. 50-50, you're going to lose your eye altogether in the next week. And I just remember being so devastated that night. And, uh, and my mom drove me. She would drop me off at my meeting, and then someone at my meeting would give me a ride home. So she drove me from Baltimore to, to, to my meeting, which was in Maryland, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But on the way there, I made a decision that the next day I was going to go downtown and... Uh, <laughs> And I'll talk specifically about, I, I couldn't take painkillers, but I decided that the next day I was going to go get a bag of heroin, right? Because <laughs> it made perfect sense. <laughs> um, 
because I knew it would take the pain away, right? I felt like I cannot possibly go another 24 hours in the kind of physical pain I'm in, and I knew that would remove the pain. So, and it, it wasn't that I felt sorry for myself. I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I felt extremely sorry for myself. But it wasn't the self-pity that was, that, that led me to make the decision to, to, to not be sober. It was the physical pain. I didn't feel like I could go through that physical pain anymore. And so I showed up at my meeting that night and I'm not going to share that with anybody because I don't want to feel guilty about my decision. It's, it's made, it's done, it's going to happen. Um, and, uh, and a woman approached me that night, um, and she told me what I needed unsolicited, right? I'm sitting there in pain and she walks up to me and says, you know what you need to do? Oh, please tell me. I mean, <laughs> Johns Hopkins doesn't have an answer, but I'm sure you do. right? <laughs> Um, she said, I needed to go home and pray for the removal of the obsession I had with my eye. I wanted to kill her. <laughs> I hated her so much. Um, I've realized today that um, I guess I thought she thought I was faking it or something. Like, you know, there, it, there was no faking. Like, people, when I took the subway to school, they'd move. It looked like there was something crazy happening, but it looked really contagious. But um, I went home that night. I remember I was so angry with her. It was like one of those things, like, I, I, for a couple of hours, I was in bed plotting her murder. <laughs> Can you really stick a cigarette in a Coke bottle? And, you know, I mean, just, just you know, when... You ever have that experience where you're so angry at someone you find yourself screaming, right? <laughs> at them with all the things you want to say to them. And then you're like, what am I doing? I'm alone, you know. And um, I'm just furious. But after a couple of hours, because I've had this surrender in Alcoholics Anonymous about everything except prayer. I will not, I will not give up the prayer. Um, but after a couple of hours, I start to get that second voice in my head that says, why don't you take the action? And then the head, no, that's stupid. I mean, it's stupid. I have a physical malady, but why don't you just do it? No, it's stupid. You know, and, and, and this is happening so much that I finally get down on my knees to shut this, to stop it, to stop the voices in my head from arguing with each other. I got down on my knees and I don't remember what I said because it wasn't important at the time. I can tell you that the spirit of it was, God, please remove the obsession I have with my eye, whatever. <laughs> I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous is a great experiment, is what it is, right? Whatever it is, is it working for me? Is it not working for me? Right? Sandy, always, his sponsor always said, how is it working for you? And sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. And this particular night, I, I said that, ridiculous prayer and I got I crawled back into bed and I fell asleep and I woke up six hours later I wasn't setting the alarm clock because I didn't have to but I, I slept is what happened and I woke up six hours later and when I woke up six hours later there was very little pain it was totally tolerable I had a little bit of pain completely tolerable pain it was it was fine and I remember we were living in the projects then we had those cheap blinds and they were dusty, but I just remember how beautiful the light was that morning hitting the dust motes, right? Um, and I had this feeling in my chest that morning when I woke up and I realized what had happened. I felt like 100% certain that God was in me, 
right? Not even like, not even just that God existed, but I felt God in me. God was part of me. And I just remember the most incredible feeling that morning. And my mom picked me up that day. And the doctor we saw that day was the same doctor I had seen the night before. And, uh, and he said he had no medical explanation for the healing that occurred in my eye overnight. And I know what happened. I, I surrendered to something, right? I said this prayer. I got sleep and the sleep healed, right? That's what happened. I prayed for removal of the obsession and it happened to work because I surrendered to it. Is, is, that's what I think happened. And, uh, and yet it doesn't even matter what happened. What mattered is that it, it, it worked because I surrendered to it. And, um, I'm still blind in the eye, by the way. Sometimes people get that wrong. Oh, now she can see again. <laughs> but I, I was blind. I'm still blind. <laughs> but it didn't matter. I didn't care if I was blind. I cared that the pain was gone. I, I just, it was such a tremendous gift. And the thing is, too, is that um, we were talking about this earlier today in the panel, and I was thinking um, about how, like, um, is it Omar? Yeah, from Iceland? Yes. So we've never met before. And you grew up in Iceland, yes. And I grew up in, in the States. And you use language that's the exact same language that I use. Uh, I love that here in Alcoholics Anonymous because what happened for me that day is I was thinking about the remarkable thing that had just happened, this, this feeling of God, this, this feeling that I lost when I was 11 that was now back. The thing is that I recognized too was that the whole time I was going through that process, which went on for months, right? Like four months or so, I felt so sorry for myself. I thought, I'm blind in my eye now, right? It's bad. It's a terrible thing that happened to me. And yet from this thing that I thought the whole time was bad, I received the greatest gift I've ever gotten, right? The grace, the grace of, of the feeling of God in a moment, right? Serendipity, unmerited, right? I did nothing to deserve the feeling of God, and yet it came because I followed, I surrendered to some direction that made zero sense. You know, as a side note, the person that gave me that direction, <laughs> her sponsor gave her that direction when she went through a bad breakup. <laughs> I am so glad I didn't know that. <laughs> because I would have judged it even more. What? That's some emotional pain. Go away. Of course you were obsessed. I have a physical malady. That's not going to work, right? <laughs> but, but it did because I surrendered, right? And from what I judged to be a horrible experience, I went blind. I went through this whole thing. I received the greatest gift I've had. So I can no longer judge what is good or bad. I have no idea what is good or bad. I know that whatever is going through, like, and I remember like being like when my daughter was out on the streets, being terrified for her, terrified that I would lose her, but also having the certainty that nothing I did that she had her own God, right? Like I had the best mom in the world and there was, she could not interfere with my drinking until, until I was ready. And I didn't look ready, but obviously I was because here I am, right? That my daughter had her own God. And while it was scary in the moment to experience that, I knew that no matter what happened, everything would be okay because I have God. 
no matter what it looked like at the end of it. And so, so whenever these are powerful lessons, because whenever I experience something in life that like, I don't get what I want and it feels so important to me that I have this thing, right. Or this new job, I want this, it's gotta be this job or whatever it is. I know that, um, I don't think I leave claw marks all over everything anymore because I, I do know that whenever I look back at, you know, five years later or 10 years later or 15 years later, I'm always like, oh my God, it's so wonderful that it happened that way because that's how I met Irma or, you know, like whatever it is, I, I get these great gifts at, at, at life going exactly the way that it, that it went. And so, um, um, so there I have my, um, you know, that, that feeling of God. And, and here's the thing too, is that I kind of thought like once I had that feeling of God, it just, it just stayed. (laughs) And, um, and it did for a long time and where it kind of faded was when my mother died. Right. And, um, and it wasn't even like, um, like I knew like, I know God didn't give my mom cancer and make her die. He didn't choose my mother over your mother or that, that these, that I wasn't mad at God. I had this like weird experience where I couldn't, I, I knew my mom was going to die for quite a few months before she died. Right. It was so fast. Um, and I thought I was prepared for it, but I wasn't when she died. I felt such a tremendous sense of loss. Um, right. And I had this thought that, um, that my mother loved me so much that she would touch me, right? Because I was in so much pain. And then if she didn't do something to make me realize she was in the room with me where I could feel her, then obviously there's no afterlife. There is no God, right? And I couldn't, I just had this period of time and I, like about a month where I kind of had this feeling about it. And I would say, okay, Vaughn, we're not going to worry about it too much. It'll come back around, right? Just take the action of prayer. So this time I know better. So I take the action of prayer, even though I feel stupid. And then of course that lifted. And I remember my sister, because I was kind of having this conversation with my sister. And my sister was like, I feel mom all the time. And I was like, see, yeah, (laughs) you know, it's, just not something, yeah, whatever. So, so since that time, I recognize that, um, that, that we do have to be seekers and, um, and Sandy has been, you know, a powerful teacher for me. I talk about him ad nauseum, I know. Um, but he has been such a powerful teacher for me of being a seeker. And, and he, he, I remember him talking about like, he says, um, he said something along the lines of that, you know, that God could and would if he were sought, right? And and how sometimes we think, like, we hear that as God could and would, right? Because what is seeking? And he said, you know, when I was a little boy and I, my dog ran away from home, what did I do to look for my dog? You know, I made signs, I put them up everywhere, I knocked on neighbors' houses, I... You know, he had his parents drive him around seeking that dog, like the, all of the actions. What did that look like? And why wouldn't I take those same actions to seek God? 
And then, you know, it, it was like a revelation to me that, that God should be that important to me, right? Like this feeling is so important that I should invest a lot of time into what does seeking look like? Um, and it, it seems to me today that, that that is also another form of surrender, right? That's why it works for me is because I surrender to this idea. It's a humble act for me to look for God, however that is. So, and there's many forms that I do, that I, that I take or many actions I take, you know, it could be, uh, reading other people's experiences, right? It's, um, service, not just, uh, not just an Alcoholics Anonymous. Most of my service is an Alcoholics Anonymous, but I like to do this thing and I'll just talk about it because you can do it and then you'll see it's really fun. I'll give one example, but only women should do this. Okay. Because Men, if you do this, we're going to think you're creepy. <laughs> but I'll just, some random woman on the street, she'll be walking by me and I'll say, oh my gosh, you look so beautiful in that dress. And then the what happens to her face in that moment, I feel God so closely. And uh, it's little acts like that, that, you know, uh, that make me feel God. Um, and so I try to incorporate those kinds of things in my day all of the time because they're constant reminders of, of, uh, of how to feel close to God and, and what to do for God's kids. So, you know, so I ended up, uh, um, um, my sponsor and I became really good friends and, um, and I ended up, the two of us ended up getting, uh, other sponsors at the same time who, who who were able to take us through the rest of the steps <laughs> because we had both only gone to the fifth step and I was like four years sober. <laughs> and so, you know, and, um, and my sponsor brought me through uh, step six and seven. And like I said, the whole idea, like, like, uh, um, okay, I want to jump back to the third step really quick because because I always worried about what the right action was to take. Is this, and I could go crazy about whether this action, is this the right thing to do? And I love in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, in the third step, it says at the top of the, it must be 60, 61, 66, it must be the top of 63, um, where it says that God provided what we needed so long as we stayed close to him and performed his work well. So like when I'm trying to decide, should I accept this job or that job? God doesn't care. God is not my pimp, right? (laughs) What matters is, am I close to him? Am I performing his work well? And then, then that makes me feel more comfortable that there is no decision now that's going to totally change the course of my, no positive, right? I could, I could do harm that would change the course of my life, but but choosing one job or another is not going to change the course of my life. It's irrelevant. Staying close to God is what changes the course of my life. So, you know, along those lines, my sponsor used six and seven to help me um, reduce the demand to meet the supply so that I would be comfortable where I was at. There was never going to be enough money, <laughs> enough him, enough whatever there would never be enough anything outside of me to make me feel comfortable in my own skin it it had to be 
it had to be addressed another way, right? God, I had to use God. And then, um, as I said, with the amends process, my, my sponsor taught me to make direct restitution, to sit people down eyeball to eyeball, to uh, tell them what I did wrong, and then to invite them to include anything I had forgotten. I remember um, when, um, so Caitlin was in foster care for a little while, and this family was so lovely, such a lovely family. They, two parents and six children. Caitlin was the seventh. She looks somewhat like them. They're all strawberry blondes. And, uh, and, and when I went to treatment, um, the mother came and, and met with me and said, um, she said, I, I don't want to give, put any pressure on you. I want you to do what you want to do, but I want you to know that we love your daughter. And if you don't want to be a full-time mother, we would love to adopt her. Right. And, uh, and I remember I was, uh, I made the decision to keep her because I was selfish. Now I'm glad I did, but, but I did it because I was selfish because she would have, she would have had a, on paper a much better life with, with the family than she would with me. And it worked out the way it should have. But, um, but, and here's the thing too. So my daughter comes back to me with a lot of issues because she's been abandoned and taken, you know, as an infant through crack houses and all kinds of I'm not a crack smoker, but that's the kind of place I liked. I feel comfortable in a crack house, right? So, um, so she had a lot of issues. She comes back to me for like two days and then I have a temper tantrum and tell them I'm going to kill myself. So they put me in a mental institution. So she comes back to me, reattaches to me. And then I go in a mental institution because I have a temper tantrum. And then she goes back to the foster family. It, It was so confusing for her and she had such a hard time adjusting, right? And so when I sat down with that family and I made amends to them um, for how I ripped, their children loved my daughter. They thought of her as her sister. They wanted to be with her. And uh, when I apologized, when I told the woman that I was sorry for what I did, and, and she said, well, no, 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 you know, I mean, she was so nice about it. And I said, well, no. And then I took her and then you had to take her back again when I went to the mental institution. And then she was like, yeah, actually, <laughs> she was like, that was pretty bad. But she was still really kind about it. But just the humility in, 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 in meeting those right things. And, and with my mother, um, my mother died when I was in law school and I owed her a lot of money, but I was still in the projects. And I'm, I'm really grateful that my sponsor told me, um, she said, go ask your mother. She said, you obviously can't pay your mother back before she dies, but ask her what she wants you to do with the money. And, uh, and so I did. I, I met with her and I made direct amends. I had done that before, but I brought up the money thing and asked her what to do. And of course, it had to do with paying for school for my daughter, right? <laughs> um, but but that was met, right? I I knew what she wanted. I got to make that direct amends, and the money got to go where my mother wanted it to go. And and uh, you know, and 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 then my sponsor. Um, you know, in the process of making those nine step amends brought me through 10, 11, and 12, right? And, and, and in the 11 step in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it gives us a, a, um, some actions to take upon awakening and some actions to take when we retire at night. And, you know, my sponsor asked me when I was new and I started to, like, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Where were we selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Something RSAD, resentful, selfish, afraid, and dishonest is that as opposed to the four-step. Um, and uh, my sponsor told me I was not, I had done a four-step but I was not in the practice, a regular practice of taking inventory. So she told me to write it down and I wrote it down for a few years and 
in the process of, like, every night my sponsor wanted me to, to write it and then call her in the morning and report to her what I, what I wrote. And uh, in the process of doing that, it became intuitive, right? So, like, I know immediately. I don't need to wait till night because if I say something unkind to Ian, it hurts me right away. I feel it right away in that moment. And then um, hopefully I have the humility to clear it up right away because, <laughs> as uh, I have my friend Rita says, like, if you have to eat dead crow, better to eat it while it's warm, right? <laughs> you know? And the truth is, is the longer I sit with something like that, the worse I feel and the harder it is. It's just better to, to rip the mandate off and, and get it out of the way. And, and, uh, and as a result of that, I, I get to continue to feel close to God and, and have this great life. Like the, <laughs> the sweet life I have today is ridiculous. You know, I have my dogs at home. I have my chickens, <laughs> my little hens, um, you know, my, um, I have this great relationship with my daughter. And, and by the way, if you heard her today, our relationship says way more about her program than it does about mine, right? Because I always wanted her in my life. She had to, she had to, uh, process things in order to feel comfortable with me after, after what I did. But, um, but I get this, this sweet life with this little girl and, um, and my life is just filled with Alcoholics Anonymous. Just, totally filled with Alcoholics Anonymous. I feel like um, almost like work is what I do in between meetings, to tell you the truth. And I have a big career and a big job, and they don't even know I'm sober. They think I'm like this goody two-shoes. <laughs> they know nothing about me. <laughs> um, and I've worked for them for a long, long time. But I do that in between meetings because I, I feel so close to God here with you guys. And I, and I really want to thank you for allowing me to come out here.